Some of you may, in your spare time, or maybe you used to, or maybe as a kid or whatever, maybe you you like to work or did like to work a puzzle every once in a while. Now, I have to admit to you that the level of patience that I have doesn't lend itself to putting together a puzzle of any more than about four or five pieces with my kids. I like those little kid puzzles because they're really easy to put together. They don't take long. But some of you probably would sit for hours and hours and hours and put together puzzles of thousands of pieces, and you have patience that I only wish I could could exhibit. But you know, when you're putting together a puzzle, uh, you know, I, I was doing some research and, and uh, learned that, that, you know, they print the picture and then they stick it onto the cardboard and then there's this really cool machine that slices it all up and it gets in the box and they ship it to your local store and you pick it up and all that stuff. But when you're putting together a puzzle, obviously one thing that you typically, or at least I do, typically refer to is the front of the box. That, that's your lifesaver. That's how to make it all make sense. That's what you're aiming for. And especially as you get more pieces, because the more pieces you have, the more complicated it is, and the easier you can get it to mess up. And the more pieces you have, the smaller they are. And so the more difficult it is to tell where they fit inside the puzzle. And so you've got to have the box in front of you. And some of you sit up maybe on a card table or kitchen table, dining room table. You've got the puzzle all spread out there, and there's the box sitting right there. And you refer to that over and over and over again. And without the picture on the front of the box, it's difficult sometimes to know how it's supposed to fit together. What's the original design meant to be? So they help you. They provide the picture. Imagine if you've got a several thousand piece puzzle and you're trying to put it all together, but you really have no idea what you're shooting for. You really don't know what it is that you're trying to make it look like. It would be pretty difficult. Some of you would just sit there and sit there and sit there until you figured it out. But for the most part... We would say, I want something to go by. What's the guide? What is the original design? And so uh, as we think about that, uh, over the next few weeks, as we begin this morning, we're going to start a series and continue that for the next few weeks, just simply called Beginnings. We're going to look at the first few chapters of Genesis, and we'll use that as our puzzle box. We'll use that as our picture. Here's what we're aiming for. This is the original design. This is how it happened. This is where things went wrong. This is God's plan to fix it, to get it back to the original design. And so maybe if you've looked at and read before the first few chapters of Genesis, you know there's several things in there. There's the beginning of creation, in the beginning, and that's what we'll look at today. There's, there's the, the, the beginning of marriage, as we'll see in, in the next couple of weeks. There's the beginning of sin. What, what went wrong? How did it happen? There's also the flood. What was God doing and why did He send this flood? It's not just a Sunday school story. God had a purpose behind it. And there's also the Tower of Babel and when God confused all the languages and what's He doing there. And then He has this interaction with Abraham in chapter 12 and and establishes the nation of Israel and has some purpose for them. We also see, as we'll look at tonight, and I hope you can be here with us tonight, we'll see what does it mean to be created in the image of God? What on earth does that mean? We know that, and we say that, and we quote that, but what does that mean? And so we sort of get in Genesis a picture on the front of the box of the way it was supposed to be, and then we'll see as we sort of have put our puzzle together, beginning with Adam and Eve, where we've gone wrong. But if we look at the original design, we can figure out how can we get back to what God wanted. Life here, as you know, is never going to be perfect, and that's unfortunate, but it is the way it is. When sin entered the world, perfection went out the window. But we can strive and get close to and aim for God's original design. And so as we look today, we're going to look first at 
that when God created everything, including us, what was it and how did He set it up? And so we'll look at today the beginning of, of, of what the Bible has to say about God's description of creation. Of course, you know there's some debate over this, obviously, and, and maybe there is some here in our church, but typically it's between those who would espouse the notion of creation against those who would say that creation was impossible, that evolution was the, the nature of things, or something else along those lines. And so obviously there is huge debate. And, and today is not meant to give you everything you've ever needed to know about how you can answer every single question if somebody has one for you, and how you can know every single thing. We could be here for days, and I'm sure you don't want to be here listening to me talk for days. And so we're going to be very brief this morning and try to give you just a launching point a starting point to, to know, here's what the original design was, here's what God's Word says, that's the picture on the front of the box, we've sort of gotten away from that, here's how we can return to it, and maybe just to wet your whistle just a little bit, as far as topics like this are concerned. Uh, later on today, I'll post a few resources on our church blog, and maybe if you're online, you can go to those. If not, see me afterwards, and I'll, I'll, I'll help you find some of those resources. Maybe if this is of interest to you, if this is something you've always wondered about, well, how can I answer some questions? Then I'd love to be able to put some resources in your hands. I've spoken with many people. One of the things I like to be able to do is help folks understand the answers to maybe some of their questions. And so today is not going to be a science lesson. Today is not going to be everything that you need to know. It's simply meant to be a starting point. And so we're going to start in the very beginning. You'll see the words of the verses on the screen behind me, but if you've got a Bible and like to follow along, we're going to start the very first verse of the Bible. We're going to read several verses today, and, and I think there's something incredible about when we do read God's Word together. And so as we do this, maybe you'd, you'd let your imagination drift and sort of picture yourself somehow watching all of this happen and get an idea in your mind. If it helps, close your eyes. You can go ahead and, and nod off now. We'll wake you up later. But, but close your eyes. Let your imagination drift for just a second and, and picture yourself sort of watching all of this unfold. And along the same lines, I want you to, st to try to maybe pick up on what is the nature of God? What, what's this passage of Scripture sort of saying about God and who He is and what's he, what He's about and all of that? So look at the very first verse, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness covered the surface of the watery depths. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. Then God said, Let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good. And He separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and He called the darkness night. Evening came, and then morning the first day. Verse 6. Then God said, Let there be an expanse between the waters, separating water from water. So God made the expanse and separated the water under the expanse from the water above the expanse, and it was so. God called the expanse sky. Evening came and then morning the second day, verse 9. Then God said, Let the water under the sky be gathered into one place and let the dry land appear, and it was so. God called the dry land earth, and He called the gathering of the water seas, and God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let the earth produce vegetation seed-bearing plants, and fruit trees on the earth bearing fruit with seed in it, according to their kinds. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, seed-bearing plants according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it, according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Evening came, and then morning the third day. 
Then God said, verse 14, Let there be lights in the expanse of the sky to separate the day from the night. They will serve as signs for festivals and for days and years. They will be lights in the expanse of the sky to provide light on the earth. And it was so. God made the two great lights, the greater light to have dominion over the day and the lesser light to have dominion over the night, as well as the stars. God placed them in the expanse of the sky to provide light on earth, to dominate the day and the night, and to separate the light from darkness. God saw that it was good. Evening came, and then morning, the fourth day. Then God said, Let the waters swarm with living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the sky. So God created the large sea creatures, and every living creature that moves and swarms in the water according to their kinds. He also created every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. So God blessed them. Be fruitful, multiply, and fill the waters in the seas of the seas, and let the birds multiply on the earth. Evening came, and then morning, the fifth day. Verse 24, Then God said, Let the earth produce living creatures according to their kinds, livestock, creatures that crawl, and the wildlife of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. So God made the wildlife of the earth according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and the creatures that crawl on the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. They will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, all the earth, and all the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. Notice how God is portrayed in this long passage of Scripture that's probably very familiar to many of us, even if we haven't been in church for very long, or maybe even if we don't believe this, it's still very familiar. But notice how God is portrayed. He is a king issuing His royal decree. This is what is going to be. He is powerful only by His Word. That's all it takes to create. He is exclusive. There's only one Creator listed in this whole story. Many ancient Near Eastern creation stories and myths talk about lots and lots and lots of different creators. There's only one in this story. He is perfect. And after every part of His creation, He sees that it is good. It's exactly the way He wanted it to be. He is transcendent, which means that He's completely outside of His creation. He is the one who's giving life to everything. He's not somehow part of it so that we should worship creation. He is outside of it and something different. But the problem is, all of that, and this story creates a great deal of controversy and debate. Because if God is all those things, and if this story is true, then it sort of rules out some other possibilities for how we came into existence and how everything got the way that it is. And so uh, the debate continues, and in that debate, in that sort of, how can I be sure, how can I understand, is this real, or, or maybe I've heard this before and I've sort of always believed this, but maybe this will be another stepping stone for you today. There, there are three myths that I want you to avoid, that I think if we can get ourselves to say, I'm not going to buy into these things, I'm not going to let this become sinking into my mind and sort of be a part of this. I think if we can avoid these three myths, then we'll have a chance to stand on some pretty solid ground. Now, I realize that I'm speaking to a crowd to which many of you have been Christians for a long, long time. And you say, well, this, this isn't an issue for me. This isn't something I'm dealing with. I'm not questioning whether or not God did all that He said He did. I also realize there are some maybe who are in between and say, well, yeah, you know, that sounds good, but, you know, I'm not sure I believe every single part of it. I think, yeah, God had something to do, but, but I'm not sure about this. There are others who, who maybe are just 
uh, you know, yeah, I understand what the Bible says, but I, you know, I've just not really been a person who's believed the Bible much. I think God might be there, but I, I think for all of us, I think regardless of where we stand with God, this will either confirm some things in us and help us to carry on a conversation maybe more confidently later on, or maybe it will help us to see how God's Word really is true, or maybe it will overwhelm us, and for the very first time we'll say, you know what? I realize that God is who He says He is. And my life then is accountable to Him, and I am giving it to Him. And so for any of us today, I think there's something that we can walk away with. So three myths. You'll see on the back of your bulletin a little way you can follow along. If you're into that, great. If not, just act like you're paying attention. How about that? We'll both be happy. See, the more you act like you're paying attention, the faster I'll talk and we'll get out of here. So... Now everybody's sitting up and leaning forward, and there we go, nodding real good, and we'll get a lot of amens after that. So anyway, the first myth is this, that it's only about time. It's only about time. There are many Christians, many people who would claim they believe the Bible, who don't totally understand what the evolution theory is all about and the goals of evolutionists, and so they seek a compromise between the two. Uh, they, they seek a compromise between the idea of creation, the idea of evolution, and, and maybe, maybe they say God just guided evolution over billions of years. Maybe this is what happened. Maybe the days mentioned here in Genesis are just really long periods of time. And, and, and maybe God, you know, obviously timing is nothing to him. He's outside of time. He's not bound by it. There's, there's nothing that he can't do, right? So, I mean, that makes sense. And maybe that's what happened. Maybe you've heard that before. Maybe that's something you've sort of talked about and sort of tried to strike a compromise there. Well, I can't fully explain everything, so maybe that's what happened. And, and sometimes we do that. But, but when we seek a compromise, I think we do so largely because we don't totally understand the other side. Because the other side of this debate, saying that creation is not there, seeks no compromise whatsoever and leaves no room for God's involvement at all. Maybe if you don't believe me, I'd like for you on the screen to look at what the National Association of Biology Teachers in their official position statement, how they defined evolution. Guys, if we can pull that up. It says here, evolution is an unsupervised, impersonal, unpredictable, and natural process of temporal descent with genetic modification that is affected by natural selection, chance, historical contingencies, and changing environments. Leave that up for just a second. Those are a lot of fancy words to say that it is absolutely and completely has nothing to do with God or any sort of design whatsoever. That is the official position, and it's still today. I looked it up yesterday just to be sure. 1995, it still stands. That is their definition. So what that means then is that they believe it's unsupervised. There was no design to it. There was nobody who set it in motion. That it's impersonal. It just sort of happens. It's unpredictable. It's just natural. Uh, it happens by natural selection, chance, and so on. If you read that, you'll immediately see and, and realize that doesn't leave much room for God. There's no room there at all for someone who created all of this. There's no room to somehow mesh the Genesis story with that definition. And so the argument or the myth that it's only about time simply is maybe an effort to sort of get you to understand or maybe to think or maybe to, to mix together the Genesis story with an idea, well, maybe God guided evolution, maybe it happened, 
Maybe these events aren't really literal, so eventually what you'll begin to believe is, well, maybe if that's not really literal, then well, maybe God's really sort of not in the process, or, 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 or maybe He wasn't exactly doing what He said He did. But I want to challenge you to not believe the myth that it's only about time, that somehow God guided evolution. Genesis itself, if you are a literary analyst, which I'm not, but if you were you would notice that Genesis is a narrative. It is meant to be read straightforward. It is not a poem. It is not symbolic. Nowhere in Genesis is any, anything like that other than just a straightforward narrative, which means, and the Bible has lots of different types of writing, Revelation is very symbolic. Genesis, not symbolic. It is meant to be read straightforward. So even the reading of the Bible does not lend itself to any reading and its nature and the genre of the literature doesn't lend itself to anything but saying, here's what it says, that's what it means. Now, that sounds really simple. But understand, there's a lot of really smart people who have gone in to say, Genesis simply says what it means because that's the way that it was written meant to be understood. So when we sort of try to reach this compromise between, well, maybe God just guided over a long period of time, then we misunderstand the way that the Bible was written and what it says. And if you define evolution, you'll realize that God has no place in it to begin with. There's no, there's no evidence whatsoever in their definition for evolution that God has a place in it. So the first myth is it's only about time. The second myth is this, that God is retired. God is retired. It's a myth. Maybe God just made the laws of physics... <clears throat> made the laws of nature. He set it up, kind of got the ball rolling down the hill, and he just retired. He's out on the golf course. He's playing shuffleboard. He's doing whatever it is that God does when he's retired. Maybe that's the idea. And people like this view of God. Some of us in here, though, we would not admit it. We kind of like this view of a retired God. Because the truth is, if we can see God as maybe our old grandpa or somebody like that, it just sort of lets us do what we want, Gives you candy and cookies and that sort of thing, and and you know, and and tells good stories and so on. I mean, he lets you cry on his shoulder, you know. But other than that, he's kind of oblivious to really what's going on in your world. He just kind of he he's just giving you stuff, you know. And and he's just a, a nice old guy to go and talk to. We kind of like that view of God, you know. Our, our grandpa. I, I heard it said that there are three signs of a great grandpa, and um, if you if maybe maybe this is maybe this is you or you had a, a grandpa like this. I know. Before my grandfather passed away, I, he was all three. Uh, number one is you've got to have lots of good stories, and they don't have to be true. They just got to have lots of them. You know, that's a good a good grandfather has lots of good stories. You got a story about everything, stuff you remember, walking uphill both ways to school. You know, you didn't have any clothes and all that stuff, no shoes, just good stories. You know, they get better with time. You know, the older you get, the better you were. You know, so the first thing is good story. Second thing is correct change. You've always got to have correct change. If you are going to be an excellent grandfather, you've got to have correct change. My grandpa had one of those little squeeze things, you know, that opened in the middle, and he always had correct change in there. And we'd walk up to the store, and, I, you know, it, he, for some reason he'd have 43 cents. There it is. I just think, who carries that? You know, but he was a, he was a grandpa, you know. So I, I don't carry correct change. Mine's on my debit card. It's always correct. That's it, you know. I'm not going to be a very good grandpa. I'm going to have to get one of those little squeezy things. And, so, and then the third thing is you've got to wear your hat just a little bit crooked. You, you just act like you just kind of threw it on, you know, and it kind of sits about like this. 
But you're not trying to be funny about it. That's just the way you wear it, you know. So you've got good stories. You've got correct change. You, you've got your hat just a little bit crooked. That's the sign of a very good grandfather. That's sort of sometimes, unfortunately, how we view God. Or how we want to view God. Boy, wouldn't it be great if that was who God was? If God was just our grandpa who gave us the little special cookies that we don't get anywhere else. And shh, don't tell anybody. That's what my dad is with my kids. You know, don't tell anybody that I just gave you that, you know, with four pounds of sugar in it. Don't tell anybody. But, but God, unfortunately, is not like that. Though that idea of God makes us feel good. Though that idea of God presents somebody we really don't answer to in any way. Maybe he's there just in case we need him, and until then he'll, you know, he'll be out on the porch or the golf course or playing shuffleboard or whatever he does. But to view God as retired is not to believe anything whatsoever about the God of the Bible. Because Genesis is just the beginning of his involvement with humanity. If you read the Bible, and whether you even believe it or not, you cannot read it and say God has not been involved with humanity. You cannot read it and say God is retired that somehow he's taking his hands off of things. Because everything about the Bible screams that God is interested and involved in every single detail that has ever taken place throughout history. So we cannot read the Bible and look at it even objectively. Even as a person who says, I don't believe it, you cannot read it and think that God, as he is described in the Bible, as he describes himself, you can't think that he's retired. And so the myth is that, that somehow, well, God just put it all in motion. And, and, and yet now he's retired. He's taken his hands off. And, or maybe it's just about time. It just, it just happened. You know, maybe, maybe not literally in Genesis. Those two myths, unfortunately, don't give anything to support who God says he is in the Bible. And so if we believe those two myths, that it's just about long periods of time, well, maybe that just sort of happened. Maybe you've, maybe you've kind of been confused about that. Or, or maybe God's just sort of not real involved, and he only gets involved when he has to, that sort of thing. If we believe those two, we really don't believe the God of the Bible. And if we believe those two, I, I think we also overlook two very important facts about this idea of evolution. These are not going to be on your outline. They're not going to be on the screen behind me. But if you'd like to write them down, maybe there's a little bit extra space there. One of these important facts that we will overlook if we believe these two myths is that the fossil record doesn't line up. And, and here's the science part of this. I learned a couple of things in ninth grade biology. This was not one of them, so I had to go back and study this. Uh, one thing that I learned for sure in ninth grade biology was that I didn't like it and didn't ever want to go back to ninth grade biology. And so, but, but one of the things that you'll learn if you take a biology class or have in the past, you'll learn about the fossil record. But unfortunately, for the people who are against creation, the fossil record doesn't line up. Let me, let me explain this to you, and I'll, I'll try to make it as brief as possible so that we don't all drown in science. According to evolutionists, nature acts like a breeder. And what it does is it continues and carries on the good traits and it eliminates the bad ones. The ones that promote life are, are carried forward. The ones that don't are eliminated. And although each individual change is, is sort of relatively small, these changes eventually will accumulate until organisms develop new limbs, new organs, other parts, things like that. And given enough time, these organisms may change so radically that they bear almost no resemblance to their original ancestor. That's sort of the idea behind evolution. You've probably heard that. You understand that. Just gradual change over long periods of time, and, and at the end, it really doesn't look like what it started as. 
Most importantly, all of this happens without any purposeful in, intent or input. As we looked at earlier, there's no creator, there's no intelligent designer, and in Charles Darwin's view, chance and nature and, and lots and lots of time are just really all you need, and things will happen. But the fossil evidence then, as a result of that, ought to show lots of gradual change, with one species slowly changing into another. It should be hard to tell where one ends and another begins. It ought to be really gradual. That's what we ought to see. But instead of gradual change, most paleontologists and people who study this discover there's stability and sudden appearance in the fossils. In fact, most fossil species appear all at once, fully formed, and they change very little throughout their existence. So what should be there, according to the side of evolution, really isn't there. There, there's a, a, something labeled the Cambrian Explosion. It's particularly difficult for people who don't believe creation to explain. And, and, and here's it in general, in a nutshell. That in an instant of geological time, that almost every animal phyla, I'll tell you one thing I do remember from ninth grade biology, and that's how organized. Kingdom, phylum, class, order, family, genus, species. Some of you think I'm really smart. I just couldn't get that out of my mind, and it stuck. Kingdom, phylum, class, order, family, genus, species. That's how everything's sort of organized. So a phyla or, or several phyla, I guess I, now I'm stuck because I, I can't say phylums because that's not it. It's phyla. That's the plural of phylum. You with me so far? It's a real broad grouping of, of species. Understand that, of animals. In an instant of geological time, almost every animal phyla seemed to just pop into existence from nowhere. And after this time, this Cambrian explosion, almost no new phyla appear in the fossil record, and many go extinct. And so the exact opposite of what Darwin would have predicted is actually what is recorded, what's, what's, what we have evidence for. And so, it, in, in a sense, this, autumn, this, this sort of popping out of nowhere, that sort of sounds familiar. We read a story not too long ago from Genesis chapter 1, where things just sort of seem to be appearing by the spoken word of God, and in fact, what we have in the fossil record, limited as it may be, supports the idea that Genesis promotes. It supports the idea that all of a sudden, here we have it. Things have appeared. And so even what evolutionists would hope to explain through fossils and so on really doesn't line up. And there's another important fact to know, and I've only got two about evolution, so if you're bored to death by science and you're like, get on with it, this is the last one. There's an idea called irreducible complexity. Now, if you're going to try to spell all that, it's going to take you a while. Irreducible complexity is this, that even in the most basic cell, a single unit cell, that, that it cannot be reduced without destroying its function. That means that all the parts must be there at the same time for it to work. As a result of that, follow it logically, if that is the case in the very basic form, that means that they couldn't have been added gradually over time or it never would have functioned in the first place. So irreducible complexity means that things had to be there all at once. They couldn't have been added over time, and it makes it difficult to argue that something evolved. Think about this. I brought a mousetrap. Mousetrap has several different parts. Some of you have used these more often than you have wanted, and, uh, and yet you've been successful, hopefully. And, and so you know that if, if all the parts are there, and you've got a pretty good chance, unless you've got a really smart mouse, you've got a pretty good chance of snapping his neck. That's the whole goal. Some of you are animal lovers, and you just think, oh, that's just awful, all right? But... <clears throat> 
Exactly. It would be more interesting if I did. And, and then if I broke a finger, then, it, you know, everything's over. But anyway, but you, <laughs> you realize that in order for this thing to work properly, how's that? In order for this thing to work properly, I just woke some of you up. It's time to go home. Is already? Okay. All right. So <laughs> that's right. Amen. Uh, and so in order for this thing to work properly, everything's got to be there. If you remove one part of it, it doesn't work anymore. It, it does not fulfill its function. Think of this as a really crude example of what a cell is. And what we have discovered through science is that the very basic cells have to have all of their parts there at once. And I'm talking about the very basic building blocks of life cells. I'm not talking about us as humans. I'm talking about just very basic. It all has to be there at once, just like this mousetrap. You take one part off, it's not going to work. And so irreducible complexity then becomes very difficult to explain apart from a sudden appearance of all those things all at one time. And so if you believe those two myths, that it's just about time, maybe it's just long periods of time, or, or well, God sort of set it up, got the ball rolling down the hill, and he took his hands off of it and just let everything happen the way it was going to, then you obviously cannot reconcile that with who the God of the Bible claims to be. And you also miss some very important facts, that the fossil record really doesn't support that. And also this idea of irreducible complexity just sort of blows it all out of the water because all the parts have to be there all at once from the very beginning. And so why then won't Darwinism and this idea of evolution die? Why won't it go away? You know, maybe if we think, well, good grief, the evidence sounds pretty overwhelming, but the truth is that many scientists, not all, but many just rule out God from the very beginning. They have a presupposition that God could not be there. And so as a result, the idea then it must prove and we must determine something that does not include God whatsoever. And so the presupposition then that God could not be there lends itself to finding some other way for everything to work, some other way for it all to fit together. And so if, if God then is assumed to not be there in any way, that that's not even a possibility, then Darwinism kind of has to work because there's nothing else that's really any better than that. And so those two myths uh, sort of are the overarching things. And, and here's a third one I want you to get. A third myth, if you buy into the idea that God's Word and what it says about creation, what it says about how He created the earth and you and all that, if you buy in that that's not true, the third myth is this, that you don't matter. The third myth is that you don't matter. Because if you evolved, if you're just a product of chance, then you really don't matter. What's the point of life? What's the point of your existence? If you don't matter to God, then obviously there is no point to life. There's no one to whom you're accountable. And those who promote evolution in the absence of God ultimately believe, whether they say it or not, that you really don't matter to God. Remember that definition? Impersonal. Unpredictable. It has nothing to do with anything but chance and natural selection. So the third myth then is, is you don't matter. You say, well, okay, great. I know the myths. I kind of understand what you're talking about. What do I do? How do I respond to this? First of all, I'm not saying that you should go and respond immediately to everybody who you've ever known because the first response I think you ought to take is to do your homework. Do your homework. Know what it is that you're talking about. That's difficult. Because it's hard to know where to find the right answers. As I mentioned, later on today, I'll post a few resources, some books, some websites, and so on, on our, on our blog, our church blog. You can find that on the website. Just maybe some things that you say, well, okay, how do I find out more? Those things will be posted there. There's a lot of really intelligent people, a whole lot smarter than me, 
who have written some really great resources to help us out. How do we, how do we explain all this? How do we understand it? And so be informed. Don't be intimidated. Be informed. Obviously, the more informed you are, the less intimidated, less confused you have to be. And so uh, do your homework. Ask God for wisdom in all of that. The Bible says that God, when you ask for wisdom, He'll give it to you. Does that mean you have to be the most intelligent person in the world? No. Because wisdom is somehow different than intelligence. Ask God for wisdom. God, how can I understand these truths more? Second response is know the truth from God's Word. Know the truth from God's Word. God is not retired. He has not somehow taken His hands off of the world. He is active and still active, just as well as He was in Genesis 1, just as He is today, still active in the world. In fact, God, as I heard a good friend say soon after his wife passed away, God is the only good thing going on. He is still active in our world. He knows every detail of your life. For some of us today, we just need to let that truth sink in. God is not retired. He knows us. He knows where you live. He knows what's going on in your world. He is not retired. He's not forgotten you. And quickly followed by knowing the truth from God's Word, you'll be reminded of this. Remember that you matter to God. You walk away with a head full of knowledge today and an an energy to go and debate somebody. That's not the point. The point is this. To remember that no matter where you are in life, young, old, in between, dealing with issues, having a great day, whatever it may be, that you matter to God. To God. Write some scripture references down. They're not going to be on the screen. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. Ephesians 2 10 says this that we are God's workmanship. Workmanship. He took time. He cares. Psalm chapter 139, verses 13 and 14 talks about how God knit us together in our mother's womb. That we are fearfully, the Bible says, and wonderfully made. That means there's something special about us. Genesis chapter 2 as we'll look at a little bit maybe tonight, talks about how God Himself breathed life into the first man, Adam. He took time to shape and mold him. The entire story of the crucifixion that we looked at a couple of weeks ago points to the fact that you matter to God because if you didn't, that whole story, the whole life of Jesus, the whole fact of Him dying on a cross would have been for nothing. Why on earth would a man do that if you didn't matter? And so buying into the thought that you're just a product of chance and that you don't matter and believing that going through life, well, I'm just nothing and nobody and God doesn't care about me is almost like being in that line of people who spit in the face of Jesus as He went to the cross. Because you matter to God. He loves you. And Jesus proved it. And so there are dark times, I'm sure, for many of us There are times when we feel like, well, I'm at the latter part of my life. What difference can I make? Why do I matter anymore? There there are times when we just think, well, what I'm doing for a living doesn't seem to matter. It's just useless. Or I'm too young to really do anything important. I really don't matter. There are times when Satan will just beat us down. Have you been there? With ideas and thoughts of depression. You don't really matter. God doesn't care about you. He's forgotten all about you. And we learn today from this very simple but profound story that we can take great encouragement from the fact that the God of the Bible, who we can know and love personally, is not retired, and that we matter to Him. But the flip side of that is that we also receive not only encouragement, but a great challenge today, because if He is who He says He is, 
that not only do we matter to Him, but we're accountable to Him. That we have someone to answer to. And so our lives then must give an account before God. The problem is we're in a pretty big deficit. It's interesting, our country would be going through this at the same time we talk about it. We have a huge debt that we owe to God. None of us can pay it. None of us at all can pay it. And yet many of us today, many of us have experienced the cancellation of that debt through placing our trust in Jesus, the only hope for our salvation. And Jesus, by His blood and His substitution, the debt that we should have been forced to pay, He paid on the cross, and He canceled it. And so two things. One is if you've never had that debt canceled by placing your trust in Jesus Christ and asking Him to come into your life, today's the day. Don't wait. And then secondly, if you've already done that, you don't have to carry that debt around anymore. It's been paid. There's nobody beating you up but you and Satan. I don't want to partner with him. Because Jesus paid the debt. It's, it's done. And so you can receive that encouragement today. Or maybe you just say, you know what, I realize I am accountable to God. There's some things I need to talk to him about, to confess to him, to ask for forgiveness. And so I'm going to do that today. Lord, you know, this is, this is not right in my life. I'm going to confess that to you. I'm going to be accountable for that. Maybe just settle that account with the Lord today. So as we close, Jan and Randy will come and, and we'll have a time just to kind of sing and reflect on what it is that God has taught us today. But don't leave today without the encouragement of knowing that you matter to God, that the God of the Bible is intimately involved and interested in every detail of your life. And in the darkest moments, you have that truth to stand on. In the moments where nobody else is around, when you feel lonely, when you feel your life has no purpose, when you feel it might as well just be over because I'm done, in those moments, understand the God of the Bible loves you. He is intimately involved in your life. He knows every detail. And along with that, understand the challenge. We are accountable to Him. That what we do matters. And maybe today we want to say, I want to settle that account. I want to put that stuff, anything in my life that's been wrong, that's been sin, I want to put that under the blood of Jesus who pays for that. And so as we close in just a minute, if there's a need that you have in prayer and you'd like to spend some time alone with the Lord, certainly you may come up here, just kind of kneel before the Lord, talk to Him about it. If you've got questions about what it means to be a Christian, how can I know if I'm really saved? Those are church words we talk about, but how can I know I'm really going to heaven? I'd be happy to, to help start a conversation, answer some questions for you. Maybe you've thought about, well, you know, this is the place I'd like to, to kind of plant my life. This is where I want to be. And I'd like to help this church be the church God wants it to be. Maybe you'd like to, to ask some questions about how, how can I join this church? be happy to answer those. But don't leave today without receiving the encouragement that you matter to God. He loves you and He hasn't forgotten you. And receiving the challenge that you're accountable to Him. And so am I. And so what we do matters. If you would stand with me, let's bow our heads and have a word of prayer and then we will we'll close with a song in just a moment. Heavenly Father, thank You that, that who we see You as being in the Bible is someone who is active who's not even close to being retired, 
who loves us, pursues us, comes after us. Thank you for that truth. Lord, in this idea of creation and evolution and so on, give us confidence. Help us to do our homework. Help us to to stand on your truth. I pray you'd give us wisdom in the moment if we ever face a conversation like that. God, more than anything, give us confidence. Reassure us, encourage us with the simple truth that we matter to you, that you love us, and that Jesus proved it. Thank you for being so involved in our lives. Lord, as we know, we're accountable to you, and so God, anything that is in our lives today that is not of you, that's missed the mark, that's away from what you want, Lord, we give that to you, we confess our sins to you. We ask you to forgive us and to cleanse us. And thank you for a tremendous encouragement. And over the next few weeks, pray you show us that puzzle box, the original design that we're shooting for. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.